0: Right, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. And um, as your pastor, um, it's great to hear you sing. Um, it does my heart good. And I know you don't do it for me, um, but man, I just found myself thinking during that worship set. I am so glad um, that we've kind of changed the schedule around where our children um, get to hear their mom and dad sing praises to the Lord. Um, if if it's only for that. Uh, then I'm a happy man. But uh, now we get to hear the gospel and uh, see it in the word. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 1. If you're a guest with us or just visiting, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. And by working our way through, we're uh, 10 verses in, in about four weeks. Um, But have no fear, we are going to finish chapter 1 today. Um, So yes, be impressed. We are going to finish chapter 1 today. I know you don't believe it's going to happen. Uh, but it's going to happen. So um, go ahead and turn there. And uh, in just a second, we'll have you stand and um, we'll read the text and jump in together. Hopefully, you've found your way over there. Um, if you're a guest, I also just want to say welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. Um, I'd love to get to meet you and hear your story and get to know your family and um, take you to lunch and let you meet my wife and all of those things. We love to get to know you and just figure out how our church might be able to serve you um, wherever God has you. Um, in your walk with Him, or you may not even know Him. You might be here investigating this whole thing, and uh, let me just tell you what we're selling. Uh, We're selling one name, and it's not Mission Church, it's not me, it's not a personality, we're selling Jesus Christ. And uh, He's what we're gonna sing about and proclaim and talk about every single week, who He is and what He's done. And uh, so, if you are on that journey of wondering who He is, uh, you're in a good place, and uh, we'd love um, to show Him to you in the Word. So, if you'll stand, uh, let's read Galatians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. And then uh, I'll summarize kind of what Paul has already said, and uh, we'll dive into the text together. Um, But this is Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. It says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up again to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie." Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia and I was still unknown in, the, uh, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorify God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at Paul's testimony today. God, as we look at your work in his life, um, Father, I pray um, that you would once again do a work in us. God, for those of us in here that don't know you, that you would cause the blind to see, that you would cause deaf ears to hear for the first time. God, so many times Christ has been taught to us, um, but Father, I pray that you would reveal your son in us, as Paul writes in this text. Um, God, make your name great. Make yourself known. um, Increase our joy. God, not in this world, not in anything that this world might give us, not in earthly accolades, not in our reputation, not in the attention from others, but God, increase our joy in you. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, free us. For those of us in here, God, I pray for the, the person in here this morning that is on the pursuit of joy, And looking for it in all the wrong places. God, that they would have, um, as we often now call, a Damascus Road experience. God, as we talk about Paul's testimony, I pray that that would once again happen this morning. Renew us, conform us to the image of your son. God, lead your people by your word, by your voice, not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, John Newton, I don't know if many of you know his story. John Newton was born in the early 1700s, around 1725-ish, and uh, he was the son of a sea merchant. Um, His mom was a believer. Um, She taught him the scriptures as a young boy. She taught him the hymns. She taught him all of those things. And then his mother died uh, when he was about seven years old. And this threw John Newton into a tailspin of sin and darkness And John decided to do the only thing that he knew, which was to go to sea. His dad was a merchant at sea. John Newton, all he knew was the sea. So he goes and eventually works on a ship and just dives in headlong over sin and darkness and drunkenness and treated people poorly and just was trying to find life and find hope in all the wrong places. And eventually was forced to go into the Navy and tried to run which never works out well, so he was caught, and he was beaten, and he was whipped and lashed, and eventually, out of the Navy, still chasing all of the wrong things, still living in darkness, and he ends up on a slave ship, and he was working in the slave trade in the 1700s, and was actively a part of the slave trade, Um, and was still so awful to people and so lost in his sin and so trapped in darkness that he eventually um, was left by his crew and by his crewmen. And John Newton, who once moved slaves and was a part of the slave trade, found himself as a servant of slaves. At the lowest point of his life, had become a slave. And through a series of events, his father sent some people to find him. Um, They eventually got him back home and still not knowing what to do, still lost in his sin, still trying to find peace in the bottom of a bottle. John Newton goes back to sea and just becomes an ordinary seaman and eventually gets in a drunken rage. And his drunken rage was so bad that he fell off the ship and this, this story has a point to, to it, I promise. Um, fell off the ship, and I, wanted, I want you to see just how bad he was that his crew, to save him, decided to harpoon his leg and bring him back into the boat. That's how lost he was, and that's how bad he was. So they save him, and he would limp from that point on for the rest of his life. Get him back on the boat, and one night he finds himself with his crew in the middle of a storm. And he gets called to go up and take a position on the deck of the ship as water is flooding into all of the bedrooms. And the, the position that he was headed towards, he gets stopped, and the captain says, Hey, go grab a knife. And the man that beat him to that position gets swept off to sea and dies. And Newton assumes that position, and he's alone in the middle of a storm, just in the hands of God, much like Jonah, just. With the wrath of God and the justice of God, John Newton is there getting everything that he deserves, and he's alone with God, and he recalls the teachings of his childhood from his mother before she passed about God's grace and his mercy towards sinners in their rebellion, and he prays alone to God and gives his life over to the Lord and essentially says, do what you want but I'm not trusting in my own way anymore. I'm trusting in you. And God would save him spiritually and physically, save him spiritually, save his soul, but would save him from that storm. And John Newton, as soon as that storm had left, decided I am leaving the sea life. He goes home and he trains to become a pastor. And he meets a woman, he gets married, he becomes a pastor and he writes over 200 hymns and his wife would, soon later, she would pass at a pretty early age. And John Newton, towards the end of his life, is thinking about his former life, is thinking about everything that he deserved, is thinking about all that his sin had brought on him, his, his family, himself, the people around him, thinking about the gift that his wife was. And he takes his pen to paper and he writes a hymn. And the hymn goes like this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And I love the third stanza of this hymn. He says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, and knowing his story, we're probably like, yeah, no kidding, right? I have already come. But then he says this this grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That his life was all about the grace of God. And his headstone says this John Newton. Once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, and pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Where did they get that line from? To preach the faith he long labored to destroy? It is the last verse that we read in Galatians chapter 1. We often refer to these 180-degree turns as Damascus Road experiences. Where do we get that term from? We get it from Paul's testimony. And what we're going to look at this morning is Paul's testimony that he is giving to the Galatian churches. And if you're just joining us, you're going, why in the world has he just giving us his testimony? Well, there's a couple reasons. And one of those is that Paul's writing to a group of churches that he planted, that he was... There, they saw the miracles, they saw him beaten, they saw him essentially not die, but almost die and come back to life and preach the gospel. They saw souls get saved and Paul leaves with Barnabas, goes back to Antioch and Jerusalem and before he can get there, it seems like this group of churches had already fallen into false gospel. They had fallen into heretical teaching. They had fallen into, it's not just that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You have to, to pony up. You've gotta do something too. It's not just good enough, it's not just sufficient enough that Jesus alone can save you. It's Jesus plus your good works. It's Jesus plus you gotta be a good person. Specifically for the Galatians, it's you gotta believe in Jesus, and you gotta be circumcised, and you gotta follow all of the Jewish feast days. That Jesus' work was not finished, you have to go and finish it. You believe in what he's done and then you gotta cross the end zone with your works. And we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks that if you fall into that gospel, Jesus plus anything else, then Paul says you don't have the gospel anymore. Jesus claimed to be the son of God and claimed to have finished the work on the cross. And how do we know it was finished? God tells us in scripture in Romans 6 that he was raised for our justification. How do we know that you and I are made right with God and we're justified? Because God raised him from the dead. That's how we know that he lived the perfect life and that his death was acceptable and pleasing to God as our atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because God raised him, showing that his life was sufficient and his death satisfied God's wrath in our place. That's how we know. Jesus claimed to have finished the work. So if you and I fall into any kind of gospel that says you gotta believe in Jesus, plus you gotta attend church, plus you gotta do all these other things, plus you gotta be circumcised, plus you gotta be baptized, are any of those things bad? No. But if we think for a second that us participating in those things attributes our salvation and earns our salvation, then Paul says you have fallen into a false gospel. That if you add anything to the person and finished work of Jesus, you no longer have the gospel. If it's up to you and I, we will never get there. Even if our salvation was 99% Jesus and 1% us, we would never be good enough. Students, children, adults, hear me. You cannot be good enough. Try it for an hour. Watch what happens. Try to go the rest of This afternoon, without sinning, and see how far you get. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We do it all the time. And now, Paul's going to argue. That doesn't mean we just keep on sinning. It's not what he's arguing for. But if you think that even if 1% of your salvation was up to you, that you could do it, you are mistaken. We cannot earn our salvation. And if it's up to me, we all we'll constantly wonder, we'll be in fear, we will have no assurance, we will be anxious, wondering if our good is good enough. And we'll die with our fingers crossed, hoping that our efforts were good enough. And here's the good news, scripture points us to an assurance that is so much greater than that. So much greater than I hope when I die that I make it. It's no, Jesus has won the victory, he gave himself, he lived a life we couldn't live, he paid the price, he died, he rose, he gets the glory. And because he rose, you can know for certain that you can be saved and that you will rise. That's what Paul is arguing. And he's been arguing that if you turn to anything else, you don't have the gospel anymore. And one of the reasons that he's being attacked is because these Judaizers are essentially saying that Paul's trying to, trying to please man. He's trying to preach this easy-believism. He's preaching this law-free message. You don't have to obey the law at all. You just have to be saved. And they're saying, Paul, of course he's doing that. He's trying to please humans. He's afraid of what the men are gonna say. So he's changing the message to make you like him and believe him. And Paul's going to play on that accusation, and he does in verse 10. He says, look, if I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you think about it, Paul is walking around in the first eight verses of Galatians giving out curses like Oprah, right? You get a curse and you get a curse. And if you teach a false gospel, you get a curse. If you believe a false gospel, you get a curse. And Paul's saying, hey, if I'm trying to please man, I'm not gonna walk around and pronounce eternal condemnation on people. If I was pleasing Christ, I would not be doing that. I would fall right in line and I would preach man's gospel, which is it's up to you. Go and be a good person. Go and try and do enough. Here's a couple more steps for you to be good enough to win God's approval. He says, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Preaching one gospel. And we talked about this last week, but the gospel is offensive enough. The Christian gospel is offensive to the watching world in their unbelief. To tell them that they are sinners, that they are not good people, that they deserve God's wrath and his justice, that they are children of the devil, and that the only way they can be saved is not up to them. It's not up to their performance. It's based on someone else's performance. And you forsake your performance, you put your faith and your trust in Jesus's finished work, and that's how you are saved. That is an offensive message. And Paul says, hey, if I was trying to please man, that's not the play I would go with. There's lots of other things I could think of than to give that as my answer, if I was trying to please man. And we get that gospel here in our world all the time. Hey, there's multiple ways to God. You have your way and we have our way. And you know, you just try to, and I think if everybody just tries to be good that they'll eventually make it to God. That's not gospel. And that's not Paul's message. He says, there's only one way. There's only one name in heaven and on earth, by which men will be saved. And it's Jesus Christ. Jesus claimed this. He said there is only one way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him, but through the way of Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He preached a very specific gospel. And then this will segue into what Paul's about to say because he's being accused of coming up with this message himself. Hey, at some point, Paul decided he was an apostle on his own. He went around somewhere, he was by himself, and then he just came back and started telling people he was an apostle, and he came back with this false message. This is what the Judaizers were saying about Paul. So Paul's going to lay out his testimony and show exactly where his message came from. Who gave him the message what consists of the message, and all of those things. This is why he gives us his testimony. So he says this in verse 11. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So Paul says, I want you to know, and here's his thesis statement of the next paragraph, of the, next, the rest of this chapter. The message that I preached was not by man. Man didn't come up with it. Man didn't teach it to me. I didn't receive this from a man. This is not man's gospel. This message of you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, man did not derive it. A couple of guys didn't get together and say, hmm, I think this would be a good message to teach. Paul says, no, 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 this message was long before man even existed. This was a message that God planned before the foundations of the world. God's eternal, sovereign plan of redemption. And Paul says that this message was given to me, not by man. It's not man's gospel. But I want you to see here, he calls them brothers. And we've talked about this. The fact that Paul here and eight other times in Galatians will refer to them as brothers shows us that there's still hope for them, right? Right? They are brothers who have fallen into deception. They've fallen into false teaching. We talked about this. If you have people in your life, if you're in here in this room, if the people you love or if you yourself, if you are alive and you're still breathing, there's still hope and there's still time to repent and believe in the true gospel. Paul's not gonna ask them to undo what they've done, to undo their circumcision. He's just gonna say, don't trust in it to save yourself. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. And if you have people in your life that do not know the Lord, there is still time. If they're still alive and they're still breathing, you've got the good news. And there's still time. But then he says this, I did not receive it from man, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul, without a doubt, is referring to Acts chapter 9. When Paul gets the message, gets the gospel message, not from a man, but from the God-man, from Jesus Christ himself. And this is what he's referring to. If you wanna flip over to Acts 9, you can. We'll have some of it on the screen. But Paul says this. And remember, he was going by Saul at this point. Paul eventually decides he wants to go by the name Paul to reach the Gentiles, i.e. the Galatians and others. But Paul grew up in Judaism the name he was given at birth was the name Saul. And it says this in Acts chapter nine and verse one. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. If you know about Saul, a chapter before this, it opens in Acts chapter eight verse one with Saul approved Stephen's execution. Saul was glad to approve Stephen's execution. Stephen was the first Christian in Scripture to be recorded as being martyred, as being killed for his faith. And Saul is there holding the garments of the people that were stoning him. Like, hey, y'all take care of this. I'll hold on to your robes. Please, make it quick. Those kind of things. Saul was the one who approved that they would do this. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He went to the high priest And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that, here's why he wants to go to Damascus. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here's what's so fascinating about this. Saul, Paul, is actively persecuting and destroying the church. Paul is going to use that language in a couple verses in Galatians. He was destroying the church, destroying Christians, taking them from their homes, bringing them back bound to be tried and accused and murdered. And he meets the risen Jesus on the road. And Jesus blinds him. Jesus says, hey, you're not just persecuting them, you're persecuting me. If you attack the body, you've got a problem with the head. And Jesus says, you've got a problem with me. You're persecuting me. How do we love Jesus? We love his children. We love his church. We love his bride. How do we persecute Jesus? We attack his bride. Jesus says, hey, you're persecuting me. But he says, rise and you'll be told what to do. And Paul's speechless, he's blind. And then skip down to verse 15, it says this. The Lord said to him... Um, this, This is God talking to Ananias. He essentially goes to Ananias and says, hey, you're gonna go meet Saul. Don't be afraid. He's blind. Lay hands on him. He'll be able to see. And then you're gonna tell him he's my chosen instrument. But he says this in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will, look at this, verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying... Um, his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So Saul starts hanging out with the believers in Damascus, he starts preaching in their synagogues immediately. He can see, and he goes and starts preaching. And before Acts chapter nine ends, this same chapter, before it ends, the Jews are already trying to kill Saul. Now Paul says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Hey, let's not let him get out of the city. So what happens? Verse 25, but his disciples, don't speed by that. Paul is already making disciples. He meets Jesus, he starts preaching in the synagogues and he's got these learners and followers around him showing them how to follow Jesus, teaching them the gospel. And how does he escape being killed? His disciples lower him down through an opening in the wall while he's hiding in a basket, and he leaves Damascus. But here's what's fascinating. Chris actually brought this up in our teaching team meeting this week. Jesus doesn't give Paul a lot of gospel. We just read the account. Why are you persecuting me? Right? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. End of story. You're blind, you're deaf, or you're not deaf, you, you, you can't see, you're not gonna eat or drink, you're gonna be blind for three days, somebody's gonna lay hands on you, you're gonna receive the Spirit, and you're gonna go preach. There's no incarnation, virgin birth, Lamb of God, none of those things. So it, what gospel did Paul receive? And this is where we have to remember Paul's upbringing. Paul was a Jew and not just any Jew. Paul was a stellar Jew. Paul grew up with the Jewish law, all of it. He was an expert in it. He taught it. He actually tells us um, for other reasons in Philippians chapter three, Paul gives us his resume and he says this um, in verse five. He says, this is Paul talking about himself. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which was according to the Levitical law that even when Paul was an infant, he was obeying the law of God. He was of the people of Israel so he was born an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Now this is a huge deal because in the Old Testament when the exiles happened, when Assyria came in and took the Jews, and when Babylon came in and took the Jews, people were getting taken from their homes, from their families, families were getting split up and a lot of people post exile had no idea what tribe they came from. And Paul says, "I'm an Israelite, I was circumcised on the 8th day, I know I'm from the tribe of Benjamin." Which extra credit When Israel splits between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, 10 tribes go to the north and they eventually get wiped out. Two tribes go to the south. One being Judah, which is where Jesus came from, the lion of the tribe of Judah. What was the other tribe that went to the south? Benjamin. Paul says, hey, I was one of the good tribes. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he speaks the Hebrew language and he says this, as to the law, as to the Jewish law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, as to passion, I was so passionate about the Jewish law that I was persecuting Christians. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So Paul is telling us that he knew the Old Testament law backwards and forwards. And what that means is that Paul would have been expecting a Messiah. He would have been expecting a Messiah to come. All of scripture points to the fact that someone was going to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. From Genesis 3 on, there was a promised redeemer, a promised Messiah. Now, the Jews didn't want it to be Jesus and didn't think it was Jesus, and that's where Paul found himself. But he was actively expecting a Messiah. So Paul is killing Christians, meets this heavenly being on the road in a physical body with the glory of God around him. You gotta be thinking, here's the Messiah, Right? And the Messiah starts speaking. Why are you persecuting me? And notice Saul's response Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Messiah? Who are you, promised one? And what does the Messiah say? I am Jesus. And I can only imagine that all of the pieces of the Old Testament law starting, started to be made clear for, for Paul in that moment. You're the one promised. You're the suffering servant and the conquering king, as the Psalms talk about. You're the descendant of Abraham. You're the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're the lamb of God who came to be slain. And he meets the risen Jesus, and all of the pieces started to come together. In fact, it wasn't just the missing piece. He he saw the whole puzzle for what it actually is now. So, not the point of the text, but we see it in John Newton's story, And we see it in Paul's story. So a quick commercial break, I would encourage you as parents, do not underestimate all of the labor and the awkwardness and the striving that you do to teach your kids the scriptures and the things of God in the Bible. Even if they don't acknowledge it, even if they don't believe it, you never know when God might water those seeds that you planted, Saul had no idea that his upbringing in the law would eventually allow him to see Jesus Christ for who he really was. But if you are a parent in the room, it's not too late to start. And if you've started and you're discouraged, do not give up. Do not underestimate all of the efforts and the conversations and the awkward family Bible studies and the devotionals at the breakfast table to teach your kids the things of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he planted and Apollos came along and watered and God brought the growth. You never know when someone else might come along in your child's life to water those seeds. And you never know when the sovereign hand of God will decide to grow them and use them. But your investment will not be wasted. And you see Saul here with all of this background of the law, he sees it for what it really was pointing to, which is Jesus Christ, the promised one, the Messiah to obey the law in our place. And I can imagine that as we'll see, Paul goes to these couple places and sits there for three years and does some other things, that he was constantly opening up the Jewish law that he was acquainted with as a child, that he had memorized, that he judged people on as a Pharisee, decided weighty measures of the law, that he looked at the law and saw it as he had never seen it before, as pointing to Jesus Christ. But Paul meets Jesus, so then Paul, back to Galatians, starts talking about his testimony. I didn't get this message from man. I wasn't taught by man. I was taught by the risen Jesus himself, and he says this in verse 13, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's Acts chapter seven through nine. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul is saying here, he wants to make it clear, I wasn't looking for the gospel at all. This law-free message of grace alone, by faith alone and Christ alone, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't plan it, I didn't come up with this to try to deceive or trick anybody. The last thing I was thinking of is grace. I was an expert in the law. I held people accountable to the law. I decided weighty measures of the law. I was trying to kill this grace movement. The last thing that I would think of would be to start preaching it unless something radically happened in my life. Paul says, you heard of my life before. I was an expert in the law. Acts chapter eight, verse three says, Saul was ravaging the church. What a word. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts eight, three. Paul says, the last thing I was thinking of was, hey, let me come up with this message while I'm by myself and go start preaching grace and decide it on my own. No, this message was not something I came up with. It was not taught by man. It was not given to me by man. And I love this. This is essentially the ultimate flex uh, for God. Um, You see Satan say, hey, I'm gonna use Saul I'm gonna appoint this man, I'm gonna use this man to stop the spread of Christianity. And then you see God most likely laugh and say, well, I'm gonna use him to start the spread of Christianity. And the man who Satan thought would stop this movement is the one who God appoints and says, hey, I'm gonna be the one to start the movement. And what's so ironic is there's one time other than the second coming where the risen Jesus, who had ascended to the Father, comes down to earth and is to meet this man, to bring him from death to life. And by this man coming to faith, experiencing the grace of God, all of the Gentiles, you and me, the reason we have the gospel is because of this man. The predominant voice of the New Testament met the grace of God in his sin, And experienced the free gift of God's grace for anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. And it radically transformed his life to where he was never the same. To the point that you and I have this good news as Gentiles now. Because he was saved. He says this, verse 15. How did all this happen? When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, your English translation there is good. Um, The literal translation in the Greek says in me. Your Bible might have a footnote there when it says to me. And I love that. When he who had set me apart before I was born was pleased, he called me by his grace and he was pleased to reveal his son in me. And it's one of those moments where I had heard the message I had seen it. I had heard, you know, I I spent eight years of my life going to church, hearing sermons, eight Christmases, eight Easters, all the things, and I couldn't see it. And then one Sunday, while my dad is preaching at Germantown Baptist as an eight-year-old boy, I had never seen it. And then God was pleased to reveal his son in me. His son had been revealed to me multiple times as I heard the gospel preached, but I had never seen it. I didn't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. And then one day, God revealed his son in me. And the things I had never seen, I finally saw it and understood it. That I was a sinner in need of God's grace. God could rightly and justly give me exactly what I deserved, which was eternal punishment for my sin. But God provided a way out. He provided a savior. He provided a substitute. He provided a lamb who would be slaughtered in my place so that I could have life and I could have righteousness. And I had never comprehended it. I had heard all the facts and I finally saw it. Why? Because God was pleased to reveal his son in me at that appointed time. And I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this is exactly what happened to me He set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace and he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Now, I want to be clear. I know not everyone loves to talk about, you know, did we choose God or did God choose us before the foundation of the world? And is that his prerogative and all those kind of things? Um, Paul's goal in this is not to start a theological debate. I'd be happy to tell you where I lean and all of those things, but Paul is saying here that it, at the very least, God is a player, God is not a spectator. We can't argue that God saw, you know, looked through the corridors of time and saw that one day we would choose him and then just kind of as a spectator stamped our decision. That's not what he's arguing here. God is the subject of all of these verbs. He set me apart, he called, he revealed his son. God is not a spectator, he's a player in this game. And Paul is arguing that regardless of where you land on this, God saved me. He showed me his grace. He showed me his son. He called me, and I love the word called. He did not beg. He did not plead. Paul says, when it was my time, God just called and I answered. And I came. And I put my faith in him and I trusted in him. And then he says this. He says, He called me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Notice the content of his message. It's not that I might preach the law, it's not that I might preach Jesus plus works. What is he preaching? Him. That's it. Paul says, I came to you with nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. No wise words, no eloquent speech, no fancy sayings, no killer stories. I came to give you Jesus Christ, person, life, death, burial, resurrection, finished work, ascension at the right hand of God. That's who I came to give you. He has lived the life, he has died the death, he has paid the price, he rose from the dead, he gets the glory. That's what I came to preach. It's the only thing he's selling. It's the only thing we're preaching here. But he says, that's why I was sent, that I might preach him. And then he says this, at the end of verse 16, he jumps right into his argument. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. After all that happened, I didn't go and grab a couple guys and come up with this message, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul says, I didn't go find the apostles and say, hey, catch me up. Am I doing this right? What am I supposed to say? He says, I didn't talk to them in no point in my story. And I hope you see what Paul's doing. He is making the case that he didn't meet up with a bunch of men and develop this deceptive scheme to trick people into false teaching. He said, I met Jesus, he called me, he showed me his grace, he revealed his son in me, and then he sent me to preach. And I started preaching. I didn't go collaborate with the apostles. He says, I spent time in Arabia, I returned to Damascus, Acts 9 confirms this, Acts 26, verse 20 confirms this, but he says, I didn't talk with anybody. And in the Greek, he says, I didn't consult with flesh and blood, which I love that because he's referring to earthly frail humans. The only one I talked to was divine. It's the only person who gave me the message. I talked to him, he gave it to me, I gave it to you. This is the order of things. And then he says this, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul says this, I preached the message for three years in Damascus before I met any of the apostles. Three years. I didn't collaborate with anybody. Then I went and I met Peter. The Greek word there means to be acquainted with. Like, hey, I should probably go meet some of the apostles after three years. I gotta meet them eventually. I should probably go get acquainted with them. So he goes and meets them, and remember, the apostles were the ones who were specifically sent by the risen Jesus Christ. The 11 disciples minus Judas, and then James, Jesus' brother, who he meets in 1 Corinthians 15, and now Paul, Saul, met on the Damascus Road. He goes and visits Peter to get acquainted with him, and then he says this. He's only there for 15 days. So it's not like they could have collaborated much if they did. You don't become someone's disciple in 15 days. In fact, the next chapter, I think some of the reason Paul says he called out and corrected Peter was to show that he's not subordinate to Peter, that they are both equal apostles. Paul's not a second class apostle getting a second class message. He was sent by the risen Christ with the gospel. And then he says this in verse 20, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now that's a bigger deal to a Jew to write that because it is against the commandment to take the Lord's name in vain. And Paul says, hey, I'm taking the Lord's name here and it's not in vain. I am not lying to you when I tell you this. This was a big deal for a Pharisee to write. I am not lying. Then he says this, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia... um, is where Tarsus is, Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus of Cilicia. So rightfully so, Paul decides to go home, most likely to preach the gospel to his own family and to his neighbors and to his friends. But I spent 15 days with Peter. I met James for a second and then I was out. I didn't meet anybody else. And then he says this in verse 22. Something happened in those three years and in Cilicia and Syria and Damascus where Paul starts preaching. Some bad things happen to Paul. Um, Paul will eventually in the book of 2 Corinthians give his list of things that have happened where he was shipwrecked and beaten and all those things. And many commentators just don't take this to the bank or anything. They argue that some of the things that aren't recorded in Acts, specifically the fact that he was... um, when he mentions he was lashed five times by the Jews and he was beaten three times by the Romans, you never see those in the book of Acts. So a lot of people argue that this, those events most likely happened in these three years that he was preaching at Damascus, and in Syria and Cilicia, because you don't see them recorded anywhere else. But something was happening. Why? Because word gets out. If you look at verse 22, he says, "'I was still unknown in person "'to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, He said, I had not met them face to face. I was still unknown to them. We had not met. But they started talking about me. And what are they saying? He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Don't you love that? The one who was hunting is now being hunted for this message. The one who is persecuting is now the one who is proclaiming. The one who was stopping the spread is now igniting the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the people glorified God because of it. So what do we see from this story? Specifically in the context of Galatians, and then I'll give the context of our own lives. But in the context of Galatians, Paul is arguing that this is the true gospel, not created by man, not taught by man, not given by man, but given by Jesus Christ himself. He didn't fabricate it, he didn't come up with it, he's not deceiving anybody, that this came from God himself. But what can we learn from this account and this story? It is abundantly clear that scripture paints the picture of conversion where it's not you and I in the the galaxy of our lives adding another star up in the sky that hey, this is faith in Jesus. Just another thing, another idea that I agree to. No, that meeting Jesus, whether it's John Newton, whether it's William Wilberforce, whether it's Saul of Tarsus, is not just adding another belief system in the galaxy of your life, but it's reorienting your life around a whole different sun that it changes everything. And it doesn't mean that you have to go out and be famous for Christ, but it does mean that everything changes. A heart that truly understands that they are a wretch, that they deserve God's wrath, they deserve his justice, but in the good pleasure and kindness of God would call me and draw me and reveal his son in me, a God who would do that to someone undeserving like me, he is worthy of my life. And it is not a burden. It is not a duty. It is a joy to know him and follow him. It's not just something else we add to our ever busy lives. But it changes everything. Doesn't mean we become monks and quit all of our commitments and all of those things. That it's wrong to have hobbies and play. No. But all of those are subordinate to who he is what he's called me to do and how he's called me to live. I mentioned Will, William Wilber, Wilberforce. It's hard to say. Um, I'll end with um, his story. Um, Wilberforce was a um, similar story to John Newton, actually. Um, lost a parent, as a, uh, lost his dad at a young age and um, grew up in, in Britain. Um, his mom thought it would be best, um, his mom and his grandfather, to send him to his uncle and aunt's house. They were wealthy Um, They decided to send him there. Um, They did not know God. They did not want him to know God. They did not care about God. And they, hey, let's send him to our wealthy aunt and uncle. And turns out his wealthy aunt and uncle were essentially closet Methodists and loved God and did not, you know, use their wealth to kind of flaunt that or anything. But they would have preachers like George Whitefield and others and John Newton over to their house on Sunday evenings to preach the gospel over dinner and Mom finds out that William Wilberforce is hearing the gospel and goes all the way to Aunt and Uncle's house and, and snatches him up. And what's so ironic is they're having this exchange as she comes to get her son. And, you know, Aunt and Uncle are talking with Mom, and Mom essentially says, Well, hey, if it's truly God's grace, he'll be saved one day. Totally not knowing that she was being prophetic in that moment hey, if this is a genuine thing, then I can't stop it, but I'm gonna try to stop it and I'm taking it back home. So William Wilberforce, I'm just gonna start calling him William, um, goes to school, forgets all of those teaching, walks away from them for a season, goes to Cambridge, graduates, as a joke with one of his friends, decides to run for parliament. And he gets elected. Two weeks after he turns 20, he is in British parliament. He's elected to a position. And what does he do? He pursued parliament because they have long vacations. And he loved wealth, he was a part of multiple gentlemen's clubs, he was participating in who knows what. And when I mean long vacations, I mean long vacations because he decides to go vacation with his mother in the south of France. And it's about three weeks in William's time to get to the south of France. Three weeks there, however long he spent there, three weeks back by stagecoach. And he gets his mom, you know, he's wealthy by then, he gets his mom, her own coach, and he's got three weeks to travel. And he says, hey, I don't just wanna sit here by myself. So he starts inviting people to travel with him, free vacation. And who does he invite? Isaac Milner. Isaac Milner was the lead mathematics professor at Cambridge. Um, I forget the, the title of the professor, but to give you an example of just how prestigious this was, two people that had this title before him were Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking. And now you've got Isaac Milner. It's like whoever's in that position has to be the smartest person in the world at that time. And Isaac Milner is in the stagecoach for three weeks with William. Turns out Isaac Milner was a believer and begins to share the gospel and William can't get out. For three weeks, they start talking about the gospel and all of the fronts All of the childhood things that his mother had told him, all these refutes to the Christian faith, Isaac Milner has an answer for all of them. And William gets to his vacation and back home and decides, I've got no other option. I'm trusting in Jesus. Where else can I go? As Peter would say, he has the words of eternal life. So what does he do? He's trying to decide, what. Like he he, he leaves the gentlemen's clubs, all those kind of things. Everything changes, what do I do with this life? do I walk away? I know I need to quit some things. I know I need to, to, to remove some things that don't help me run after Christ. And he removes those things. But he's worried about his job. Do I keep it? Do I leave it? Who does he call? John Newton. Hey, John. Former wretch who was saved by the grace of God. What should I do? Do I quit my job? And John Newton says, No you work your job for the glory of God. Everything changes. You don't have to walk away from your commitments, use them for the glory of God. You don't have to walk away from your hobbies, use them to evangelize to your friends. Use your job, use your gym, use the golf course, use whatever it is for the glory of God. Everything changes. And William Wilberforce, last time I'm gonna say it, (laughs) used his position in parliament to end slavery, in Great Britain, dedicated his life. In weeks before he died, the act was signed that officially abolished slavery in Great Britain. Used his job, used the grace of God who would run after a wretch and a rebel like him for his glory and for people's good. So I don't know where you are. Maybe you're the wretch this morning and you need to receive the free gift of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ After we sing, we'll stick around. We'd love to talk to you about it. But for those of us who know this grace, everything changes. Let's be a people like Saul, like William, like John, who aren't trying to be famous, but who use our lives and where God has us for his glory and for the good of others to hear the gospel. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you. God, as we sing, Our only response is to give you the glory. God, none of us are Christians because we've arrived, because we were smart, because we figured something out that other people haven't. God, the only reason that all of us in here who are really good sinners, the only reason we know you is because you called us by your grace and you were pleased to reveal your son in us. God, what a gift. There's no price to pay for that. There's nothing we can do to pay you back. God, our only response is to joyfully give you our lives, not to try to make it even or break even with you, but because we know we never could. God, because you're good and you love us and you draw us and you call us. So God, help us to use our lives for the glory of your name. And it's that name that we sing about as we respond. In Jesus' name.